Well, hello, all you cool cats and kittens, and welcome back to the Movies Are Good podcast. My name is Pyman, and if you're wondering why there hasn't been a new episode in a little while, it's because Across the Spider-Verse blew my mind pussy that hard. We're talking about it today as well as successful weird spooky boy The Boogeyman, Netflix animation Wonderkind in Nimona, and the Indiana Jones franchise in all its, I'm assuming, perpetuity? Never say that. We've also got one of the worst Indiana Jones rip-offs I've ever seen, and an Across the Spider-Verse live-action fan cast, because you know they're only seconds away from announcing a live-action Miles Morales movie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They already announced it, so stay tuned. So with a few weeks off we had there, we're going to have various June and July films to catch up on over the next few episodes, but I know a pretty good place to start. Across the Spider-Verse, or Spider-People, a multiverse movie-making guide, as I've taken to calling it, was absolutely ridiculous. A movie that so brazenly leaves itself on a cliffhanger should be something that I kind of sit here and shit on for an extended period of time, and I did in our last episode with Fast and Furious 10, but I can't quite bring myself to do it, and I have to say, it was so super frustrating to be in the cinema consecutive weeks getting left on cliffhangers that kind of cock teasing you have to pay for normally but it's you know it's it's the way that the summer blockbuster is working this year unfortunately and those aren't the only two times it's happened either which feels absolutely ridiculous the fact that mission impossible is now doing the same thing the fact that we've got three different part ones within a month of each other Oh, yeah, that hurts, but it's fine. <coughs> it's fine. The thing about this is that it's different, okay? Fast and Furious, every entry in that franchise is just this thing, okay? It's it's this thing, it's a three-course meal, well, I guess. <laughs> it's the McDonald's equivalent of a three-course meal. It's what you expect to get. And Fast and Furious 10 just kind of did the same thing without the third course. It just didn't have an ending as such. It just kind of left itself at the beginning of what seemed to be a third act. And that was super annoying. Mission Impossible, same thing. Okay? <laughs> as much as it was a better version of it, it's again just doing what Mission Impossible movies always do, but it was trying to elongate the whole process. And it, it worked pretty well, but we'll talk about that in another episode. Across the Spider-Verse, it's somehow, and this is my favorite thing about it, which there's there's a lot of great things about it, it somehow managed to make it feel as if the standalone into the Spider-Verse <coughs> is now necessary viewing as the opening of a trilogy. Instead of making this feel like it was part one of two, it made an incredible job of making it feel like it's part two of three. And that is, that's really nice. <laughs> when you're when you're in a summer filled with blockbusters that are just kind of going, yeah, we're starting something, we're not going to finish it. It is such a step up to get one that goes, okay, we're continuing this. It's very much a continuation. We're doing awesome shit. Just incredible next level shit. The kind of stuff that is going to be legendary in animated terms and in just trilogy terms, for decades. It it really does that good a job of turning this into a trilogy 
when it began as a standalone thing. There's not many that do it that well. Even trilogies that are planned to be trilogies from the start, like the new Star Wars one. Fuck it up. And this, no, this felt like it was beautifully planned from the beginning. Whether it was or not, I have no idea. Doesn't matter. So, Miles Morales, he's doing his whole Spider-Man thing. So is Gwen Stacy in a completely different universe. And she kind of, I mean, there was a renaissance vulture, which was really funny. This kind of thing is what you get to do in a multiverse movie. And what bad or lesser multiverse movies mistake is, is that they kind of, they flash through too much stuff. Like, when everywhere, everything everywhere all at once kind of flashed through different universes and stuff, it was, it, it was done better. And part of that is because it, it kept coming back to the same ones. It, it had little recurring jokes in there. If you just kind of do a one-off flash of something weird, because you can and it's a multiverse, it, I don't know, I think it's cheap laughs. And, uh, and that's kind of more what you saw in, like, Doctor Strange in, in the Multiverse of Madness and stuff like that. Uh, and I mean, The Flash. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that in a different episode. <laughs> I can't get into that today. But uh, mistakes that it made as well was, was going, look, bang, 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 bang. With the cameos at the very end of the third act. It was just it was nuts. It was the craziest time to throw that in. It was the craziest way to try and do that didn't matter um and this doesn't do that in, instead when it does something like oh look it's a renaissance italian vulture supervillain it it kind of it it sticks the joke you know instead of going whoa crazy thing whoa weird thing whoa multiverse thing and moving on it it actually gives time to the things it chooses to focus on and that's just unique in a beautiful way it makes it feel way better you know <laughs> you don't just go oh look this other version of the vulture beaten no it's he's he's powerful there's things going on it takes multiple spider-man jumping in from across the multiverse it's and that's just nothing that was that was nothing that was like the quick opening oh gwen's introduction to these guys but instead of i think a lesser film especially an animated one which normally you know you you hit 90, 100 minutes, and you're like, cool, done. Especially in a sequel. No, this one went all out. It is one of the longer animated movies I've ever seen. I think of it as kind of being the Invincible of animated movies. Invincible blew me away, and I'm really looking forward to the second season. Because when the first season came out, I immediately went, what? An animated show where each episode is like 40, 45 minutes? What the hell is happening here? And I thought that was so well done. The fact that they took their time making it, they put effort into the things that you'd put in in live action, but it's normally too expensive or you can't bother doing it for an animated show. They gave it all the time they needed to tell this story properly, but in a beautiful animated form that managed to just expand upon what you could do with a superhero series. It was great. And I think this film does the same thing for animated superhero movies really proves they could be on that next level. As if we didn't already know that with some of the great DC animated movies they've made. But they don't get theatrical releases. They don't get widespread media attention. And I hope that this is the first step to kind of changing that, but we'll see. Anyway, the actual story itself, awesome. Obviously, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a pretty obvious place to go in some you know, in some ways that we saw all these different Spider-Men coming to him. Now he's going to go to them. Duh. <laughs> that's the easy way to make it bigger to have more Spider-Man 
uh, anyway, um, it's, it's, it's genius. And I love the fact that, again, when it actually decided to focus in on one of those versions in particular, like the Spider-Man India thing, it actually gave it time to work with. It actually did a whole thing around it. And this idea of the canon events and stuff, which has become such a meme now, a giant meme, it's already, like, ca canon moment unlocked and stuff. It, I'm just hearing it everywhere already. Insane amount. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it, it's absolutely everywhere. Um, and, yeah, I think, A, Miguel, I, I wish there'd been, like, a little more... I think we'll see more to his character next time out. I I yeah, I, I wish there'd been a little more around him and his story, but it, it kind of definitely did enough for you to get quite a lot of the gist of why all this is happening and why he's like this. Um, he looked awesome, he felt awesome, he felt inspired, and at the same time, Spider-Man 2099 was always this kind of a scary version so it, it's an easy one to turn into this kind of oh my god scary boy uh and i love that i thought it was just it was so fantastic it was so well done oh some of the sequences are so incredible i know that it's there's this whole thing about them underpaying all the artists and stuff and starving them to death i mean god damn i don't know if there's enough money in the world to give these people for what they did with this because it's so unnaturally incredible i just i don't see a, why more studios haven't tried to do it this way, and B, obviously they haven't. It's <laughs> the amount of money it, it must cost, especially, I mean, the amount of money it costs, even though they're not paying them a fair wage. Jesus, imagine if you were. Um, but the amount of time it takes as well. Studios are so used to, with animated sequels these days to just, oh yeah, pump them out whatever and you can say what you want about i don't know like despicable me three and things they are they are low effort garbage in comparison to the kind of thing they've aimed for and achieved with this it is it's unbelievable and i loved it so much uh, even though i kind of think i don't know the ending and the place where it chooses to end they're <clears throat> I mean, it won't annoy me in the future. <laughs> when I'm actually watching it and then immediately watching Beyond the Spider-Verse, I know it won't annoy me, so I'm trying not to be annoyed by it now, but, like, it is a little bit, you know? Just, oh, there's another Miles. He's prouder. Ooh. It's, it's kind of like, ah, oh, moment. It's not a <clears throat> moment for me. I don't know. I, some, some people, it definitely seems like it was. I kind of went... In my head, like, yeah, there, there were quite a lot of, I don't know, I don't know. It, it, it seemed like it was a likely place to go with that. And then they did. <laughs> I, and I mean, and I mean, sometimes not doing that would have been the wrong option because it would just be not doing it for the sake of a twist. And instead they... They did where it kind of felt like it was going, and to me it didn't feel like that much of a twist, but it is, yeah. It just feels like a, a bizarre point to suddenly leave off, but they did have the kind of, the kind of train going up and all the Spider-Man chasing Miles and stuff, that was very climactic. So then they just kind of had to get to a point where they could naturally leave it after that part was done. And having all those reveals and having Gwen gather the old team and stuff, it seems like a pretty fair place to leave it, so I can't really actually argue with anything to do with it. I 
I'll be interested. I mean, I'll be very interested. I'll be very excited to see Beyond Spider-Verse. I think I'd prefer this to Into the Spider-Verse, even though Into the Spider-Verse was a better self-contained story. Much. Um, I think I do prefer it. I'll be interested to see how I feel about this one after Beyond the Spider-Verse is released, and we can kind of watch it as a trilogy. I'm, I'm not sure what I'll think, because I feel like I'm going to look at this one as much more of a in-between, as a, as a go-between, you know? <laughs> I feel like Beyond the Spider-Verse is, is going to be the big finale. Into the Spider-Verse was the whole thing of him becoming Spider-Man. This one was always going to be in danger, I guess, being in the middle of that, of becoming this just episodic bit <laughs> in the middle. And it's so, so much more than that. If it does end up being that, it's one of the most incredible versions of that I've ever seen. And for a trilogy, it is an incredible second entry. It does just absolutely everything you could want. So I'm giving Into the Spider-Verse the highest of 9 out of 10s possible. And now we got to talk about Nimona. <clears throat> and there's a lot of different films we've missed in the last in the last while, and I'm talking about Nimona for a very specific reason. Because it represents the slow turning of the animated genre in the kind of direction that led to the inevitable creation of something as mind-blowing as the end of the as the Spider-Verse movies. Because those movies are, they're this pinnacle of this new style of animation that isn't afraid to be cartoony while also taking itself seriously, you know? It, it's not afraid to do this, like, really out there, out of the box, newfangled animated style where, where you are seeing and hearing all of these different voices and styles of animation in the one place. And so, uh, quite a few, actually, I think. Netflix has been in a really good run. There have been flashes of this brilliance throughout different Netflix animated movies recently. I don't know, not all of the Netflix animated movies are made by the same people, but it's more kind of like smaller animation studios getting a chance to get their works on a big platform when, when they distribute them through Netflix. And things like, I mean, Sony did the Mitchells versus the Machines for them. And that was so balls to the wall. It was, it was perfect. I loved that film. And it definitely wasn't afraid even while having a story that, that felt serious, that had themes running through it about family, and it was still just this crazy film most of the time that was just doing mental shit. It, and it's those flashes of, of going, oh, you could do this and this and this all in the one animated movie and make a work of art, a work of absolute genius that's infinitely rewatchable. It's that that led to something as incredible as the Spider-Verse movies being created. Nimona is just another great example of this. Is it actually better than, like, the Mitchells vs. the Machines? <sighs> it's about on the same level. It's, it... Oh, I've only seen Nimona once. It's par for the course. <laughs> with something as good as Mitchells vs. the Machines for me. And there's a few others that Netflix have done, and they're all just like, whoa. I mean, the Klaus is different. I love Klaus so much. I'll talk about it like some Christmas episode. I love Klaus so much. But um, yeah, it's it's on that kind of level um, for these animated movies that Netflix have released in the last few years, which are just bangers. Almost all of them just bangers. They, they've also got a couple, you know, the, the Sea Beast, 
Wish Dragon. These are just rip-offs of other animated movies. Still not bad, either of them, I didn't think, but not on the same level. Nimona is about this... Well, there's this group of knights. They protect this kingdom from monsters. And, you know, if you think this is going the same direction as, well, a lot of Netflix animated movies, then you're right. <laughs> Literally, last year, was it, they released The Sea Beast? I think it was last year. And, <laughs> and it had mostly the same plot as this. I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> this is way better, okay? So there's this guy. He's a knight. He came from Purr became knight anyway, against the odds, good job, but then, at ceremony, murder, queen, uh-oh, and uh, he didn't, but then, sword, bad, who gave sword, uh-oh, so that's the bad guy, yeah, they took too long revealing that twist, but it's fine, and then, this girl turns up, says she's Nimona, she can shapeshift into whatever, just whatever, and she informs him that she is now his sidekick to be evil and commit evil acts against the kingdom. And Nimona is, well, the perfect vehicle for a lot of issues that people really want to talk about and represent. And Nimona was dumped as a project by Disney, who could have potentially had it and released it. And as with Disney dumping things like the Isle House, there's only one good reason as to... Well, sorry. There's only one likely reason for why they did it. It's not a good reason. It's not a good reason. Big gay. <laughs> big gay things in Nimona. There's big gay things in Nimona, and Disney didn't like that. You know why? Because Disney are cucks. <laughs> and if you ask me, you know what? It's fucking great. It's fucking great. And some of the best voices, particularly in animation recently, have come from gay sources. Very gay things. <laughs> and you know what? That's fucking awesome. And some of the things they've done in, in animated shows and animated movies recently are so incredible. And Disney is going to fall so fucking far behind the curve if they don't get on board soon. The, the overwhelming force of us just continuing to talk online about how much we love things like Mona is going to pummel them into submission. Sexy gay submission. <laughs> That's right, Disney. <laughs> <coughs> so, Nimona was great. <laughs> it is a film that everyone should watch at least five times. It, is, it, it should be an instant classic in animated terms. I'm always curious to see... Having been released on Netflix, how lo like the longevity of some of these things, how they'll be, you know? You talk about some of the legendary Netflix shows, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black. I feel like they've mostly been forgotten about only a few years after they ended. And I'm not sure if that's just the public's attention span or, or what, but yeah, in terms of like the best Netflix movies we'll ever see, how long they'll be remembered compared to ones that are released through theaters, I don't know. But Nimona deserves to be very, very well remembered. It is so goddamn good. I loved it so much. Um, it it has this propensity. It has it has this capability to constantly be a meme in the best way. <laughs> um, it is fascinating. I I can't quite. I, I don't quite understand how it did it, but it is next level uh, meminess while also having this intense, 
dramatic story lurking in the background uh, several times, really, and in several different ways. And, um, and pretty much everybody seems to be gay. <laughs> which was just great. I loved it. I loved the casually gay. I loved the big gay reveal. I loved the oh yeah, so gay. It was so goddamn gay. I loved it. And I'm giving Nimona once again nine out of ten. I should mention not quite as strong an out of ten as Across the Spider Verse. Across the Spider Verse is like you know, but it was it, it was woo. But Nimona is is like strong nine still. And of the new ones we're going to talk about this week. Well, news a subjective term when we're catching up like this. The Boogeyman. I wanted to talk about the Boogeyman. It, it really, it surprised me. And I think I went to see it, like, right after I saw Across the Spider-Verse. So, my mind was like... <laughs> my mind was, like, done for the day. My mind was going, oh, damn. And it was focused all in on Across the Spider-Verse. And I wanted to talk about it in the same episode, therefore, because it surprised me. What did I expect out of it? Not much. I won't lie to you. It looked like the kind of, hey, this thing has happened. Now there's a curse on our family. Now we'll find out more about the curse. The curse will do scary things. The dad won't believe in the curse. Obviously, parents don't believe in the curse until the third act. And then they start believing in the curse. And then, oh, God, oh, and it's over. Or is it? End credits. <laughs> yeah. That has happened so many goddamn times. And I'm tired of people pretending it's something new. This really pissed me off with Smile. Smile came out last year. I did not think it was very good. And I I couldn't fathom how excited people were getting over it because it was just another one of these demonic cursed things. We'd even seen ones with them going like, mm, with the Smile before. It blew my mind how much people managed to like that when it just did nothing for me. I'm a big horror fan, so I, it really surprised me. This one, I saw people talking about, I saw people saying, okay, it's actually pretty good, and I kind of, I still didn't raise my expectations a lot, mostly because the last time that happened was with Smile, um, but it did get me, it did get me, it was pretty good at being scary, actually scary, not just bleh, <laughs> not just bleh, scary, like, ooh, scary. <laughs> I don't think that makes sense. It was actually a lot better at building tension, at keeping the tension, but it it did the kind of conjuring thing. I always refer to it as the conjuring thing because I, I just can't think of a better example. I can think of earlier examples of films that did it, but I can't think of a better one. Um, the conjuring was so goddamn good, the original. In fact, eh, second one as well. At having these moments of re relaxation, proper proper relaxation during a horror movie. Horror movies that try to keep the tension there every second feel it doesn't work. You can't do that. If you if you if you watch anything in the world, you know, you go for like a big finale. You can't go for a big finale if you're up at that level <laughs> the whole time. You need to uh, you need to build and things need to work in waves. That's how just audiences' attention spans will be kept. And yeah, The Conjuring always did that really well. There were scenes where like, they would be just strumming the guitar, or singing Elvis, and it would be very chill and relaxing. And it would feel like a nice family movie for about five minutes, and then they would start building tension again. Genius. And I loved that. And this did that quite well. Not as well by any means, but it did it quite well. There was this family. There is a lot of poignancy because dead mom, mom is dead. Mom is fucking dead. Of course she is. There's got to be a loss in the family. And then they're they're all linked to death. And then there's the death thing. And, there's, and the boogeyman basically seems to be, yeah. I mean, they never go 
go that deep into explaining what up with that. But it comes because this guy turns up at their house because their dad is a doctor, a psychiatrist who takes... He's like a therapist who takes the clients into the house where his children live. I just... Is that a thing in America? I don't think it's a thing here. I would not. Gee, I... Oh, no. Um, but anyway, yeah. That's a thing. And... Um, and then the client dies. Supposedly killed himself under suspicious circumstances. And then they start getting haunted by Boogeyman thing. And... It doesn't actually quite feel like it was really like a Stephen King thing. I, I, I've i read quite a lot of Stephen King stuff, and this one, it, it, there's something about his flair that feels like it's missing. But then again, I'm guessing it was more of like a short story <laughs> that, he, that he wrote that they've kind of taken this whole thing from. Um, and honestly, yeah. It's, it strips away, I think, some of the things that would have made any Stephen King story, even a short one, feel more original than this. Uh, I liked... I did like the characters. I, I didn't feel like screaming at them that often that they were dumb pieces of shit, which is always a good sign in a horror movie. That's when it starts to get really frustrating normally watching them. I I thought it was good. I didn't think it was like anything incredibly special. It is, at the end of the day, it is still one of those. It's still one of those paranormal movies. It is a good version of one of those, but it's still one of those. And I think I'll give it like a 7 out of 10. It's... It's definitely a movie I would find worth watching again. I'm not I'm not going to rush to, because it is one of those. But if I was in the mood for one of those, somebody said the Boogeyman, I'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Which I really didn't expect. I was expecting more like a four or a five, like some relatively crap, really. <laughs> It's ranking time! <laughs> That's right, it's time for a ranking. So, this segment is the one where we talk about some films that we're going to try and put in some kind of order. And we could do it with just any number of things that have come out recently. I'm going to go Indiana Jones. A, a franchise that might be done. I mean, <coughs> look, I, I oh, not, not that we don't love Harrison Ford, but god damn. I mean, there were a few times, and uh, I'll get to it. <laughs> he he says he's done. He really should be done. Whoa, um, and uh, and I just I really don't. I mean, I really don't want them to get someone else to just play it. I think they'll wait a while. I think they will do it. I, there's just no reason to do it. You can you can. Do an Indiana Jones ripoff, you know. You they have Tomb Raider. <laughs> you could just do another one of those. You don't actually need the brand. It doesn't matter. They will. They will. They will. But for now, we're gonna act like Indiana Jones is actually done, and we're gonna rank from worst to best. So, no, no awards for winning. <laughs> no awards for guessing who, uh, where we start. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is indeed the worst Indiana Jones film. I. Rewatched it, okay? I rewatched it yesterday. It is fresh in my mind. And here's the thing, okay? I'm going to say something controversial. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull isn't as bad as you think it is. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> Let me cook here. It's not good. It is the worst of the lot. 
but it's not as bad as all that. In my mind, it's like, oh, God, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which had kind of kept me away from it for a long time. I rewatched it recently. Because of Rise of the Beast, which I'm going to have to talk about in a future episode, I also rewatched all the other Transformers movies recently. I've watched far too much naughty Shia LaBeouf in the last week, but it's fine. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing about the fourth Indian movie, okay? Your immediate thought is, oh, that's a terrible movie. It's not really. It's not a good movie. It's quite a bad Indiana Jones movie. Chalabo's character starts out annoying and ends up unbearable. The story is weird and wacky, but they kind of all are. The Soviet idea was a good place to go after the Nazis in the earlier films. It was, you know. It's overall quite an average naughties blockbuster. Which generally, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, looking back at them, weren't that great. <laughs> One big positive is that Indy doesn't actually feel like old man Indy. He does just feel like Indy watching this back. And I mean, part of that is because Dial of Destiny has been done now. And he was 80, which is just nuts. But it, it it's surprising to see the amount he actually did, the how capable he still looked when he was he was 65. And he just he, if you look back at it, he really doesn't look it at all. Especially now seeing him at 80, you kind of go, huh? <laughs> you look at him in, in Last Crusade, which is 1989, then you look at this in 2008, and then you look at 2023, and you go, what, huh? It just doesn't feel like it makes any sense. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love that. Uh, dude was 65, and he looked amazing. Um, I also liked the Mayan influences. The Eldorado shtick is a fun sell. Shia doesn't annoy me as much as I remember. I mean, it was kind of unbearable at times. There is the swinging with monkeys bit that... Yeah. Um, I also think this shares an irritation for me with Dial of Destiny. The first word you think of when you hear Indiana Jones is, you know, globetrotting. It's adventure. It's going out to these wondrous places. Why is the entire first third of the film in America? It just, yeah, that kind of felt weird to me. It went on for too long. Kind of went on for too long, Dial of Destiny too. Um, but yeah, Crystal Skull, it is the worst of the lot, but it's not at a level where if I was watching through the franchise, I would actually leave it out, you know? It's it's not quite that bad. It's, you know, it's it's silly. It's It's got a lot of silliness to it. But I I think we, we're just too pick and choosy with Indiana Jones, you know? Yes, it would have been better, probably, if <laughs> the fourth and fifth films went, oh... The, the, like, Christian religious artifacts fighting them off of Nazis. That's where, that's where it really works, huh? Let's do that. The fifth one did return to Nazis. Gotta give it that. <clears throat> but, yeah. Um, overall, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, 5 out of 10. It's not, you know, it's not a strong film. But I, I do think we, as, as, as the internet kind of grows and has since kind of 2008, we shit to an unnecessary level on things based on their worst aspects. And Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, it's, it's just not as bad as we kind of want it to be or imagine it to be. <coughs> <coughs> Next, it's, it, it's close. It is Temple of Doom. I am a defender of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
I, I have the opposite thing. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I was shitting on unnecessarily. Temple of Doom, I was kind of protecting and, and backing it up too much. <laughs> in my head, it was like, oh yeah, it's the lesser of the three in the original trilogy, but it's not like bad. And I watched, you know, I watched the Indiana Jones trilogy a lot of times as a kid. I had the DVDs and I just, I wore through those things. <clears throat> but Temple of Doom's just not that good. <laughs> it's young indie. You know, looking, having to deal with the fact that, oh, he got old and then they made these new two. That, I, it, it does still help it to a degree. Young Harrison Ford doing his thing as Indiana Jones, it's great, you know. But it, it is, it is silly. It is silly. All the Indian stuff comes off worse now than it did at the time when it was... I mean, in 1984, it was it was still not really okay. But it's it's even worse now to watch back. Uh, Willie Scott is one of the great irritations in the world. She is just an awful character. Wow. Um, Short Round is there. He's also annoying. <laughs> I know we're on this whole kick about, oh, they reunited at the Oscars, and then he won the Oscar, and it was so great. Harrison Ford was happy for him. That's that's nice, but Short Round was a pretty annoying character, too, let's all be honest. Um, the whole plot, you know, he's ripping hearts out of chests. Ah, yeah, yeah, no, um, the whole thing. I watched it back as well just the other day, and... I wanted, you know, I wanted to find ways to defend it. I did. I, I was going in with the idea that, yes, no, <laughs> Temple of Doom. I will tell people on my podcast why why they should not sleep on this one, why they should give it more of a chance again. Not really. Is Indiana Jones really that great a franchise? <laughs> I don't know anymore. Uh, I always thought that the trilogy, the original trilogy of Indiana Jones films, one of the great trilogies. This really just fucked around in the middle, didn't it? Wow. <clears throat> Look, it wouldn't have been such a big deal if they'd made more of them, okay? You know? If they'd made more of them, it wouldn't have been so noticeable. <laughs> but you wouldn't have thought of Indiana Jones as such a great thing, probably, if they'd made more. Because there would have been more ones like this, and you would have just gone, oh. Um, Overall, Temple of Doom. Six. <laughs> Six out of ten. I was going to say seven. <laughs> Dial of Destiny does therefore make it ahead of that. Doesn't make it any further up the list. No. This is, I think it's fair to say it kind of bridges the gap and, and is maybe as good as third out of the five. I think it's it it's pretty silly. <laughs> I think I'd be surprised to hear people calling it any better than that. And I wouldn't be too surprised to hear people saying it's lower than third. Here's the thing. Um, it's dumb. I have to say, has anyone noticed that the Indiana Jones films we like are the ones where he doesn't fucking do anything? Every, there's a whole there's a whole meme around it, you know, about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, you think your way through it. Indiana Jones doesn't actually affect the plot. But have you ever thought about the fact that Last Crusade... If they'd found it, it would have the whole place would have collapsed like it did. 
and they were going to choose the wrong grill. <laughs> so once again, last crusade, the Nazis wouldn't have got the Holy Grail if he wasn't there. In fact, they probably wouldn't have even made it there if he wasn't there. I, I mean, I guess he got in and saved his dad from that situation. That's as much as he affects anything to do with the plot. And then, Dial of Destiny. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're telling me that he's the the dude set the dial. Archimedes it was Archimedes. Archimedes set the dial so that it was always going to come back to him. So, and then and then they at the siege took down the Nazis' plane. So, so once again, Indiana Jones is there to lead the bad guys to what they want, only for them to find out. Fuck. <laughs> the Indiana Jones franchise is the perfect example of. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> He never does fucking anything in in the others. No, never mind. <laughs> My point is, um, wow, <laughs> just just wow. Uh, but yeah, Dial of Destiny overall. Again, like I said, with King of the Crystal Skull, it set itself. Look, it it set itself in America for a long time at the beginning too long at the beginning it was a long movie it didn't feel it felt it felt reasonably long yeah and it did kind of just <laughs> i mean god damn if i had as many old friends that i have a huge amount of history with as indiana jones i would be at least 82 <laughs> the man, like, he just he just has so many incredibly close friends that you've just never heard of and to be fair it's not exactly like we've well documented every part of his life, but still. <laughs> I also admire him for being able to fail at a marriage in his 70s. That's That takes effort, and I'm really tired of that Hollywood trope where it's like, oh, this guy, we ended off and he was happy. Happy and getting married off at 65. You think at that stage at least he could just chill no no we're gonna break up his marriage kill his son and he's just gonna have had the, the worst most shit last 15 years you can imagine <laughs> what the hell um and to be fair at least they killed Shia LaBeouf that's that's always a comfort to me but you know it it, it kind of seemed wacky it kind of seemed silly the the fact that I was more interested at the beginning when they talked about the blade that pierced Jesus when he was um, crucified, that got me going like, what? And then they were like, oh, a time time turner. <laughs> we found a time turner, Hermione. Uh, yeah. If he'd, if he'd been fighting the Nazis over the, the blade that Christ was stabbed with, it might have been a better movie. Let's just all be honest about it. <laughs> Instead, yeah. Doing time travel in Indiana Jones. I can't say I'm on board with it. I thought it was well executed for what it was. At least the fact that it's all time travel only really affects the end. You know, the rest of the film was still... It doesn't matter, you know, when you're just chasing something like that, it doesn't really matter. Um, and they did all the things you would want them to do. 
I liked Phoebe's character, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character. I thought she did well. Um, and the kid that then just kind of appeared, and I assumed he would go away, but he stayed. Um, I liked him too. I, the kind of the the fact that he managed to fly a plane for the first time into a temporal rift and around a sieged city and then back out. Okay, the fact that they, they she just kind of punched Indy at the end to knock him out, and then he woke up for the first time again back at his apartment in modern day New York. <laughs> like, there's some dumb shit, and I'm sure that the internet, after a period of time, will turn on this film a bit more the way that they turned on King of the Crystal Skull and judge it by its worst aspects. Overall, it does Indiana Jones things. It does them well. I thought it did well, the CGI at the beginning, for young Harrison Ford. His voice... <laughs> sounded fucking old they they did not do a good job with that there were times it really came through and didn't even vaguely sound like young Harrison Ford but in general the CGI was fairly well done I admired them for trying to do a long sequence like that at the beginning it was bold um, and it, yeah it kind of worked overall Dial of Destiny 7 out of 10 um, I don't know I don't know what I'll think about it on rewatch I think my opinion will change on rewatch I might like it less. I might like it a little more. It's it's hard to tell. And I think the problem is that Indiana Jones crushed the idea of the treasure hunt with the other two times they did it. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a cool idea. It was well executed. It worked perfectly. And then the only way that they ever really managed to follow it up properly was with the Holy Grail. So let's talk about The Last Crusade. <laughs> How you managed to make Sean Connery cool that many years after he was done playing James Bond. <laughs> it's, it's surprising. It was awesome. Um, I mean, yeah. The fact that eight years after Raiders of the Lost Ark came out and Temple of Doom had come out and kind of not been the same, they managed to go, okay. So we know that Christian holy relics, good. <laughs> and we know that Nazis, good. And, and yeah, kind of, that's, that's it. <laughs> and don't make Indy's companions annoying as fuck. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, it when you actually think about how they must have conceived The Last Crusade, there are so few things that seem difficult about it. It, it is a pure sequel to the idea of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not as good as it, in my opinion. It it just did the things that you do in a sequel. He was still fighting Nazis. It was still the same villains, because he didn't defeat the... You know, he didn't, he didn't defeat the whole Nazi thing, regime, and you can easily set another movie there before or during or around World War II. Um, and, yeah, the Holy Grail, you know, it wasn't like they were like, oh, some secret Christian relic you've never heard of. No, it was the most freaking obvious one there is. And <laughs> hadn't Monty Python just done that, the whole thing, like, a couple of years earlier? They just, there was nothing difficult about the process behind The Last Crusade. The chemistry, they nailed. The, the actual idea of casting Sean Connery to be his dad 
them two doing the whole thing together. That was great. <clears throat> but there are, there are very few other aspects of the film that feel like they actually did anything like mind-blowing or really reinvented the wheel. It just took the Indiana Jones character, it didn't fuck him up or fuck around with him too much, it gave him this dad character who was funny and weird. <laughs> really weird. And then, and then it just sent them on this adventure. It was simplistic. It was a simplistically conceptualized sequel. But they just did everything you needed to do. And that's why Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade gets like a high 9 out of 10. It was, it's amazing. It's still an amazing film to watch back. It's so good. This is why Indiana Jones is legendary. Because they had one incredible film. And then they followed it up eventually with another incredible film. In between, and what happened after, is just all unnecessary. <laughs> Those two films are the only ones you really need to watch, okay? In fact, even watching them in order, it's those two. A little, maybe, maybe not a very widely known fact. Temple of Doom was a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was set in like 1920-something for some reason. <laughs> It, it was meant to be, like, quite a bit before Raiders of the Lost Ark. I've never really understood why so much, but it is. So, actually, if you're watching the Indiana Jones movies in chronological order, you're meant to watch Temple of Doom, then Raiders of the Lost Ark, then The Last Crusade, and then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Dial of Destiny. Couldn't tell you why, but that's it's true. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know what... You even have to say about Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just... It's just that good. It really is. Yes, he doesn't affect the plot. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It's awesome, okay? Every inch of it. So many of the shots feel so important, so legendary. The, I don't think the adventure genre in film would even exist today. And it hardly does. <laughs> anyway, but... Every film that comes out feels like it's been some way been inspired by Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just that goddamn good. It really is. You watch it back, it's still just that goddamn good. There's so many incredible moments. The making of stories behind it all are so great. It, it, Indiana Jones became iconic in <coughs> everything forever because of it. You, you can't see someone wearing that hat and not go, oh. <laughs> just a hat. <laughs> Even if it's not the right hat, sometimes you go, oh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, I don't even know what to pick out and talk about with it. It's 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 just one of those films that I really have to assume everyone knows and pretty much everyone must love. Doesn't like Indiana Jones. Doesn't like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, it, it really is. As much as I was kind of saying, like, Last Crusade, Nothing genius here. Raiders of the Lost Ark had a lot going for it that was really, for 1981, just, I mean, and again, it, it was just inspired by a variety of things, but it kind of took all the right parts. It really did. And it just made something, which again, is cookie. For its time, exceptionally fantasy, way out there cookie. <laughs> Giant religious magic spirits coming out of a box. That was the finale of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and yet, brilliant. Just brilliant, I'm telling you. I love it so much to this day. I, as a kid, watched it constantly. Constantly for, for a couple of years. I just 
wanted the Indiana Jones movies on non-stop, on repeat. Ridges of Lost Ark, 10 out of 10. It is, for, for the adventure genre in particular, yeah, I don't know if anything really beats it. Um, and that's the ranking, yeah. Crystal Skull, it's it's not, you know, when I say bottom, it's it's bottom. It's not bottom, you know what I mean? You, you, if I'm, if you're only hearing this, you understand. <laughs> if you're seeing the video of it on YouTube, you'll get it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I think Temple of Doom, Dead Dial of Destiny. I think that's the one part that I'd kind of not be surprised if people turn that around. Uh, and then Last Crusade, and then Rage of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what I feel about Dial of Destiny on rewatch. But the rest, I feel like I'm pretty much set in my opinions. <laughs> Wait a second, this movie is. Terrible. So movies are good, but movies are also bad, okay? <laughs> and every week I like to look at a movie that's just not on the same level, perhaps, as the other movies we talk about. This week, in honor of the Indiana Jones trilogy, I watched one of the... Well, ironically, Indiana Jones was inspired by, or you could say ripped off, Alan Quartermain and his adventures. But... The Asylum, well-known makers, you know, they, they get on movies are bad a lot because they make the worst kinds of mockbusters that, that are just trying to rob your money blind as you accidentally click on buy this DVD instead of the one you actually want. And in 2008, when King of the Crystal Skull came out, they made Alan Quartermain and the Temple of Skulls. <clears throat> so... <laughs> There is something exceptionally bold about taking a plain white dude, putting what looks like a Crocodile Dundee hat on him, calling him Alan Quartermain so you can pretend you're focusing on a completely different fictional treasure hunter, and then putting the title together using pieces from the two worst Indiana Jones movies. This is, through and through, a 2000 attempt at a 2008 attempt to snatch up some people who hated Crystal Skull just enough to try any other adventuring treasure hunting film. It's the kind of thing I had to watch in five minute increments just to get through. Because from the opening shots, I don't know, there's something weirdly frantic about the editing, and you really have to turn it up high to be able to even hear most of the lines? The sound editing, uh, I can't get over it. In, in these bad films, that is always... Mm, it's bold to say my number one pet peeve, but it's so irritating. Like, you know, I, I can't even try to properly hate the film if I can't even hear what they're saying. <laughs> if I can't even hear the nonsense script, I can't make fun of it to my the best ability I have. And that pisses me off. So when I, uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty bad. It's not anything. Um, I don't, I don't get why. <laughs> you know, there are times where they just play the music too loud and you think, did you not? watch that back and realize you might need to fix that it doesn't matter um so yeah crocodile dundee had called alan quarterman meant to be ripping off indiana jones but has a plot closer to the mummy with brendan fraser you know the idea is that alan has found half a map to this treasure and is selling it to some creepy dude so not quite indiana jones and the creepy guy says not to compare this south african group to the nazi party <laughs> alan quarterman was born in 1830 <laughs> So this hundred-year-old dude bumbles through generic period piece costumes in a shockingly boring-looking part of South Africa, which is weird because I checked, and the film was actually filmed in South Africa, so there's no excuse for most of the landscape looking tragically boring. And by the way, 
for a British noble character, like a, a, a British gentleman. That's what Alan Quarterman is. He sure is 1,000% South African <laughs> all the way. <laughs> There's no mistaking it. He's so goddamn South African. I don't even know if they're trying to hide it, if they're pretending that he's meant to be the actual British Alan Quarterman or if he just happens to be called Alan Quarterman. <laughs> He's not a hunter, like Alan Quarterman is. The creepy old guy that's following them around. He's, he's like, in his 50s. He's, he sounds more British. And he is always carrying his big rifle over his shoulder. So, I mean, he he could be Alan Quarterman. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they are... He's joining this brother and sister. And they're trying to find this treasure in Africa. It is so the mummy. <laughs> but even after getting to know them, he's still demanding crazy amounts of cash for leading them through the grave dangers they must face. There are some scenes where they, oh God, especially at the end, <clears throat> after they like win and stuff, they they have this scene where they're all going like, <laughs> and smiling just silently, and then looking to the next person in line, and then they are like, yeah, and smiling. I can't tell if it's meant to be like a joke uh, or, or, or a parody thing, but it is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's so frustratingly stupid, the filmmaking at times. And there are bizarre scenes where everything can be heard, like their footsteps, each footstep to a really overly loud degree, meaning you can't pick out the words. And other scenes where the sound is turned down are covered so much by the music that you can't pick out the words. So, uh, I mean, I can't even really tell what the treasure was they were looking for, but it's some sort of treasure. Um, yeah. Uh, so my favorite parts, I think, are when they insert random shots of zebras, bison, and, and rhinos that are clearly in just a completely different place from where they're filming the rest of the scene. Um, those stock African filler images, they really... Level the whole thing down another another notch. It's impressive. Um, they have a really slow moving train sequence. They have a there's bees. Let's get under this ledge and they'll all fly over us conveniently sequence. There's a oh we're African experts, but there's a rhino standing there, so we're terrified. Scene. <laughs> and after just those things happening, those are the only things that have happened. The woman turns to her brother and is like, "I can't believe we made it this far." And I just I actually face pammed at that point um it's very frustrating yeah um i just don't get why these low budget movies continuously try to do high budget things and i guess the answer is because if they tried to do low budget good things they would have to actually have like a good script or good actors or something and so they're trying to cover their weaknesses by showcasing more of them it's i, I don't know it's bizarre <laughs> But yeah, um, and then, very excitingly, there is the section where they introduce the native local tribe people, and that's when things get real dodgy. Ooh, yeah. We're talking witch doctors, ancient rituals, using giant claw contraptions to rip the heads off some of their own people. Yep. This was kind of like what, like, it was like the fever dream equivalent of watching a Disney Channel show do their worst pop culture inspired episode. You know, I'm talking Lizzie McGuire Freaky Friday levels. No, actually, that was fucking good. That was a good episode. That was just the only one I could think of. Um, but there's plenty of them. And some of them were pretty dodgy and pretty goddamn bad. But then they finished and went back to making the regular show after they did it. This 
is all these guys have got. <laughs> and that's kind of sadder, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, in total, um, Alan Quartermain looks like if Sean Bean and Nikolaj Kostrawaldu had a baby. There is no temple, really. Uh, temple of Skulls is in the title. They, they see this building, but then they kind of walk into a cave near it. I don't... It's very unclear whether they walk into the cave and are meant to be in the building, or... Uh, I don't really think they were ever in Temple Skulls. And that only shows up in, like, the last ten minutes. Um, that is very rushed, the whole ending section. But it's fine. Um, in spite of all the random bollocks, I have to say that... And it pains me to say it. This wasn't actually as bad as some of the movies are bad movies we do. <laughs> some of them have no redeeming qualities. At times, I was going, oh, at the kind of production design or, or costumes or something. You know, there, there were little tiny flashes of not 150% garbage. It is a freaking bad movie. Don't watch it. One star. But I'll give it... 2 out of 10, just, because I've watched so many bad movies that I had to go, oh, it's better than that, oh, it's better than that, oh, it's better than that, so I think I have to give it a 2, seems unfair, <laughs> I don't want to, but I, I will, yeah. Oh, jeez, oh, man, oh, here I go, fan casting again. Fan cast time? Fan cast time. Oh, here we go. <laughs> and we're ending off today with a very special new idea, yes, normally I, I used to do like fancast videos on YouTube and stuff, I'm including it now as a segment in our podcast, because I just kind of ramble when I do it, and that's what I do for the whole podcast, so I might as well, and I'm doing Across the Spider-Verse today, what if they did Across the Spider-Verse in live action, sorry, when they do <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse in live action, what will it look like, hmm, that's a fair question, um, they've already announced that they want to do a live action Miles Morales film, there's already potential for it to cross into the MCU. It'll be very interesting to see what they do. The Sony, now that they've kind of used Across the Spider-Verse to make an excuse for why they can do as much multiverse bullshit as they want um, with their Spider-Man movies and potentially blend it into the MCU later to save their own shitty Morbiusness. Um, if, if you were doing this, okay, you start with Miles Morales, okay? You get Caleb McLaughlin. He's on the verge now of being too old for this. Soon, you're going to have to start fancasting somebody else. But I do love the idea. I'm not going to do it yet, okay? Kill McLaughlin is 21. Did Stranger Things is still doing Stranger... Oh, my God. He's 21, and they're still doing Stranger Things. <laughs> It'll be done soon. It'll be over soon. Uh, they kept going too long. They should have finished with the third. I know the fourth season was great, but, guys, taking too long. Um, he is perfect. He just is. He's got the swagger. He's got the confidence. He could totally do a Spider-Man. He can be Miles Morales. Yes, if you're casting Miles Morales as a 16-year-old, that is right on the verge now, being 21, of, of what I would probably cast myself. If you did him older, Miles Morales, he'll always be good for it, but I, I doubt they will. Um, regardless, great idea. Gwen, I... Oh, <clears throat> I love Spider-Gwen. <laughs> Spider-Gwen is um, one, of my, one of my real favorite Marvel characters to, to read from the comics, to see in these films. I love her. And I thought Haley Steinfeld, great, great job in uh, animating her. And I used to really be high on the idea of Kieran Shipka playing her. 
if they did it in live action. I've, I've got another idea I want to present. Really love it. Millie Alcock. After House of the Dragon, I'm kind of looking at her going, Oh. <laughs> oh, though. Okay. Because she could be really good. She seems to have... She's the right age. You know, Kieran Chipka's starting to age out of maybe that territory where she could play it. Millie Alcock's the right age. She's she's young. She's British, like almost every Spider-Man in live action ever. Um, and uh, and she's fantastic. Her kind of role in House of the Dragon, as far as she played the role, was exactly the style of of Gwen. It's exactly what you want. There's this feistiness to the character. There's the, it, it's perfect. And she'd look great. <laughs> Let's not deny the fact that she would look great in the role. Okay, it's true. Um, ah, Miles' parents. Yeah, it yourself. Just, just take it. Just take it. Okay. <laughs> yes, there's there's a few different people who could do this kind of role. You know, you're looking for a guy probably getting on into his fifties now. Uh, it. Idris Elba. <laughs> don't, don't question it. Okay, Jefferson Davis, police captain. Cast Idris Elba. Just make it easy on yourself. Why not? <laughs> Just do it. And Rio Morales. I want Rosalind Sanchez. Yeah. I won't lie to you. There are not that many middle-aged women acting today from Puerto Rico, but <laughs> Rosalind Sanchez has done a lot of work, a lot of TV work more so, and she's played this kind of mother role already. And it is, you know, Rio Morales, great character, but at the end of the day, very much a mother. <laughs> that is what she is. We do not see her in a context outside of that role. We see her talking to Miles, talking about Miles, worrying about Miles, being in Miles's center universe. She doesn't do other things as far as we're concerned in these films, okay? So, mother. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's all she is. I know. It's not nice to say. She does more than that. I think she has a job, right? She's a nurse? Doctor? But, as far as the films are concerned, that's the rule. The rule is to play a good mother. Rosalind Sanchez has done that a lot before. Peter B. Parker. You want... See, I'm not a big fan in general of, uh, of of Big Jake that plays him in the films. I like him in the role. I think he does the role really well. If you're doing it live action, I would want somebody else. Somebody who still brings that level of comedy and wackiness to the role. And this kind of middle-aged, I can't be bothered, but I'm still a hero. And I want Andy Samberg. And I can't remember, I feel in my head for some reason like Andy Samberg's already had a role in one of the Spider-Verse movies, did he? I don't think so. I, I remember thinking Spider-Ham, was that him? That's John Mulaney. And then I remember thinking, the spot, who plays the spot? But that's that's not him, that's Jason Schwartzman. No, Andy Samberg's got the exact kind of voice and his great voice acting to do one of the roles, in the wackier roles in these films. Um, but he's also good enough in live action that I think you could probably cast him as an, as an older Peter Parker, as a middle-aged Peter Parker who's kind of given up mentors and then has the baby because in Brooklyn Nine-Nine he's always playing this man-child who then grows into the role of a father it's lit it's perfect <laughs> look at that it's amazing it's perfect <laughs> um, 
I love that. The spot then, it is Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman, you know, it's, you gotta do some motion capture work, but he is, you know, Spot doesn't really have a face, and it's, it's gonna be CGI'd quite a lot uh, if they did him in live action. So you would be able to just cast the same voice actor. I like the idea of casting somebody similar. I want Bill Hader, who again is, because the spot is meant to not be taken seriously for the longest time. Bill Hader, is, he's great. He's done things like Barry recently where he's shown, yes, funny guy, also just fucking great actor. And that's what you need for the spot. You need somebody who can pull off the, ha villain of the week kind of comedy thing. And Bill Hader, especially voice work, automatically comes off like that, like you shouldn't take him that seriously. And then you hit with the other spot stuff that kind of goes on throughout across the Spider-Verse. Awesome. Um, that's what you need. That's what Bill Hader can bring. It's perfect. Easy. Um, as for some of the other spider characters we see, not gonna, I'm not gonna go through and cast absolutely everybody we see, but bit of quick fire. Jessica Drew, Sinequa Martin-Green. I wasn't quite sure about aging for Jessica Drew. I was kind of like, well, she's pregnant now. She's kind of starting a family. She comes off as such a mentor to Gwen that you need her to be like, you know, maybe not under her 40s, but definitely under her 30s. I wanted, you know, in my head, I was like, cast somebody like Halle Berry. Halle Berry's 56. I was kind of like, damn, really? So, I mean, she, she could maybe get away with it because she doesn't look 56, but probably not really. Sadiqua Barton-Green is fantastic. She, she's done a very variety of roles, but things like Walking Dead show off badass, okay? And, uh, yeah, I think she'd be great at that role. I think she's probably about the right age. She's about 38. I was kind of like, okay. It is maybe a bit old, but you need somebody a, a, quite a bit older than the Gwen actor to, to really come across as this. It's 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 closer to being a motherly role to Gwen every time she talks to her than a big sister role. So that's why I kind of went skewing older. Um, Spider-Man India, Karan Brar. I don't know how much stuff he's done recently. I was kind of like... I really like the kid that was in Jesse and then the other thing. Would that, what age is he? And he is the right kind of age. He's the same sort of direction as like Kill McLaughlin, Millie Alcock. And I got the impression, Spider-Man India was still in high school, right? Hmm. Maybe I'm misremembering actually, but he's definitely, he's the right kind of character and I, he definitely wasn't much older than them, so I think it's, I think it's perfect age casting. Um, Hobie Brown. I mean, I mean, you, you absolutely can just cast Daniel Kaluuya again in live action. He would need hair extension. I've never seen him have hair like that. I've never seen anyone have hair like that. It's beautiful. But, um, I don't know what you'd do with this in live action. It would be insane. It would be so weird. But, if you were casting different person live action, I'd go John Boyega. Has anyone seen they cloned Tyrone yet? I'm going to talk about it in a future episode. Awesome. Uh, and once again, proved that John Boyega, not just going to do Star Wars and dip, he's got other stuff. He's got other stuff in the bag, and that was awesome. Uh, I thought that was so good, and made me think, yeah, actually, he, he could have done the Hopi role. He could do the Hopi role in the future. He could pull it off. Um, and before we hit the final one, actually... George Stacy, Gwen's dad. It's a very emotional role. That's a very beaten down oh, kind of character. And 
I want... I want Jared Butler. I really struggled with this one, actually, for a little while, because I was like, you need somebody who's probably into their 50s. It's this older guy, police captain. He's worn down, but he's still like, her, you know? He comes off as imposing and intimidating. And then you see this chink in his armor as the film goes on. <clears throat> and Jared Butler just seems like he'd really pull that off. I know he's very Scottish, and it's very hard <laughs> for him to do a proper American accent, but at the same time, you can get it. Let the man be Scottish. <laughs> that just makes him seem more intimidating. And then when the chick in the armor comes, it's like, whoa, whoa. When you see a man like Jared Butler cry, you go, whoa, whoa. So it's perfect. And Miguel O'Hara. <clears throat> I mean, he's designed in a way that, yes, yes, again, Oscar Isaac can play him in live action if you wanted him to, okay? When we do fan casts, I try never to cast the same person as played them in the animated one, okay? And for that reason, that reason only, I'm going to replace Oscar Isaac. And if you're replacing Oscar Isaac and you need a Latin kind of actor to play a intimidating potential villain who's very charismatic, <coughs> I'm just going to cast Pedro Pascal right there. I'm just going to cast Pedro Pascal right there. Of course I am. The doy. <laughs> the doy, guys. Okay, yes, I'm casting Pedro Pascal. Come on. And uh, I think that's pretty much good. That looks like a, it would be a beautiful version of um, a film that couldn't get any more beautiful already in animated form. And they shouldn't do it. They should leave it as it is. Don't do a Spider-Verse film. You don't need it. There's been too many multiverse films lately. Don't do a live-action one of these. It won't be as good. It'll be sad. But, <coughs> moving on. Next week on the podcast. That's right. We've got a few more episodes to catch up, so it'll be coming a little thicker and faster probably than usual. Um... Next one, I'm planning on hitting The Flash. <sighs> I'm planning on, on just ripping some band-aids off and doing The Flash and the Transformers kind of whole franchise ranking situation all in the same episode. It's going to be... It's going to be interesting. And then to mitigate how sad I'll feel talking about those for so long, I'm also going to do Asteroid City and Elemental. Ooh. exciting stuff um and so thank you guys for tuning in i hope you enjoyed and i will see you for that next one